Okay guys, welcome back to the Back Surf Show. This week on we have Ben Legg, who I'm super excited to come on. He's had an incredible career and he does something quite unique, but it's quite important to the startup world and he's changing things in a certain way. So Ben Legg, he's the CEO of the Portfolio Collective, but I'll let Ben explain that. Ben, imagine we're on a first date. Tell me about who you are and what you do. Okay, so I've got two parts to my, my career. Um, and then I should talk about me too, but it's starting with the career, as I say, I am, my, my day job is the, the CEO and co-founder of the Portfolio Collective, which basically helps professionals launch and sustain portfolio careers. A portfolio career is basically one in which you have multiple sources of income um, and monetize your skills in lots of different ways. And it's becoming massive. So launched during lockdown last year, uh, it's community-based. We've had you know, 20,000 people get involved with us one way or another, about a thousand members, lots of training, events, um, collaboration, etc. So that's sort of my day job. But I also have a portfolio career. That was what, what kind of got me into in the first place, which is centered around helping startups build great companies. So I helped helping founders build great companies. So it's a mixture of startup mentoring, angel investing, board jobs, a bit of consulting, um, and just generally kind of joining the dots, you know, helping starters find investors, investors find um, startups, and, and just generally being involved in that ecosystem. I try to keep that down to 10 to 12 hours a week because I've got the day job. Uh, but I actually think the two inform each other. Amazing. So how did that, how did that, you don't fall in, well, you fell into it, I'm sure, but like there's, there's a background to it. You can't just leave university and be like, hey, I'm going to start a portfolio career. Like yeah. what, what happened? Where did you start out? So let's go, let's, let's wind it all the way back. Now I know you're a, you're a military guy. Um, so you were in Remi, is that right? Uh, Royal Engineers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I basically went straight from school to Sandhurst um, for officer training, but knowing that I would go through university and study engineering uh, on full pay, it was a very good gig uh, that they've since cancelled because it's quite expensive for the taxpayer. Uh, it was great for me. Um, so uh, and I joined the Royal Engineers, which basically meant I spent uh, my 10 years in the army traveling around the world, building things and blowing things up. Uh, I spent time in Bosnia and Northern Ireland and, and other things. Actually, for a while, I was designing all the bomb proof structures in Northern Ireland, which, which was a, a cool job. Yeah. Um, anyway, did that for 10 years, then spent nearly 10 years in what you would call big business. I went from the army to McKinsey as a strategy consultant for a bit, officially based in London, but almost always abroad. Uh, then from there to Coca-Cola, did various sales and marketing jobs in Greece, then Poland, then India. Um, then I left um, big business and went to the startup world, uh, albeit it was Google, which was rapidly turning from a startup into a bigger company. It's head of a name, it's head of a roster right there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Run engineers, run engineers to McKinsey, to Coca-Cola. It's quite good. And then this little yeah. startup called Google. So how early yeah. was it? So it was, uh, let me think, in Europe, because I was basically the CEO of Europe. We started off at maybe with a thousand people-ish scattered across Europe. Uh, was about 4,000 when I left. Um, so that might sound like it's not a startup, but the chaos and craziness and lack of structure felt like a startup, but we did have a few billion in revenue. So it's kind of a, um, a very profitable, crazy startup. Uh, and I kind of was in, and was probably one of the architects of, of professionalizing Google. So Google clearly was wildly successful. Search was growing like crazy. They just bought YouTube, etc. cetera. Um, Google Maps was doing well. So lots of things were going well. But the business, the business, the way in which uh, Google makes money was reasonably amateur. You know, that basically with almost any property, there were some ads which were just text ads on the right hand side. But there wasn't much sophistication around thinking, could there be other types of ads like you know, videos, images, display, logos? How do we think about ads and maps? How do they fit together? Um, yeah, how should you deal with agencies versus direct customers, big versus small, different currencies, different countries? So 
uh, I basically kind of wrote uh, a strategy and then kept iterating that and implementing it for, for the three years I was at Google of how does Google make money? Um, how do we sort of systematically monetize the audience that, w that we have? So I take zero credit for the audience, some credit for, for monetizing that audience. So I did that for three years. Then I left Google and did a series of basically tech CEO jobs, uh, mostly advertising technology with my last one being in mobility. So after Google, I moved to uh, Amsterdam, then Kansas City, Singapore, New York, uh, only two sets of shareholders, but you know, a company that kept morphing uh, through different acquisitions and, and, and what have you. Um, I, I basically got heavily involved in the world of advertising technology. Then I moved back to the UK um, nearly three years ago and said I don't want to work in ad tech anymore. Um, partly because most of the money is flowing to Google and Facebook. Partly because I feel like it's an industry that's 70% the way through its transition uh, or transformation to digital. And I like the earlier part of the journey. So I want to work in other industries that need to be reinvented. Um, was persuaded to join Ola. Uh, Ola is like the Uber of India. It's a lot more complicated than that, but that's the simple story. And they, I was employee number one in Europe and they said, can you write a strategy, acquire licenses, hire the team and, and, and work it out? So did all of that, launched in about 10 cities. And then about 18 months ago, resigned from Ola and thought, at least for now, I don't want a full-time job. Um, I, I had all these things spinning on the side and it was taking up more and more of my time and I was enjoying it. So that's when I basically said, um, uh, I want to, I didn't call it a portfolio career because I didn't know the phrase existed, but I want to help founders build great companies. You know, at the end of the day, my DNA is I'm a builder. That's what I like doing. Um, and so started doing some angel investing, started doing some mentoring, started doing some board jobs, you know, a bit of consulting in between. Some was paid, some was unpaid. And um, I, during lockdown, at the beginning of lockdown, loads of friends and family came to me and said, Ben, can I have a career chat? You know, I've, I've been reflecting on life or I've been laid off or whatever, you know, just had time to think and I want to pick your brains. And so I had a bit of time at the beginning of lockdown. So I said, here's a Zoom link, let's have a chat. Um, was doing it four or five times a week and then I started getting really busy. Uh, and so I thought, right, okay, I'm just gonna have one career workshop every week and whoever asks for career advice, I say, here's a link, see you Wednesday. Um, and what I realized quite quickly is people didn't want a general career chat. They wanted, they in essence said, you seem to have a cool career, this whole doing lots of stuff. Um, you seem to be happy. It seems to be future-proof. What's my version of that? What does it look like? And so I started realizing there was a theme to all these conversations, which is how can people who don't have a portfolio career have a portfolio career? Because by then I discovered there was a name for what I did. Um, and then I started um, trying to sort of do more research around the subject. Then I discovered this software that said you could charge people for watching a Zoom, attending a Zoom. And I thought I'll charge strangers and give a free link to family. So I was making a few hundred dollars a week running this workshop, um, thinking this is just part of my portfolio. By then I'd called it the Portfolio Career Workshop um, and I'd done some research and got some structure. Um, and that was it. And I was just thinking this is part of my portfolio. Uh, but then about last June, um, a, a very brash lady from New York was on. She's one of the ones who paid and she said, um, you're really good at this, the world needs it and no one else is doing it. So why don't you turn this into, a, you know, take it seriously, make it your day job. And I slept on it, or actually I didn't sleep. I kind of lost sleep for a weekend. And on the Monday I posted a job ad for co-founders and formed the Portfolio Collective. So kind of a, a long journey that kind of happened to me really. It's just like, I was just trying to be nice to friends and family and ended up turning into a business idea. I like that. So your um, your portfolio career turned into a startup career. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I also thought maybe my portfolio career will spin into a company, but not helping other people do what I do. I thought 
maybe at some stage I'll invest in a company and say I want to go in, you know, all in on that or something. Not to, that I would end up kind of uh, it's crazy know, teaching other people to do what I do. Yeah, well, look from the outside, it's obvious the progression, isn't it? It's like you know, you you know, a founder is someone who finds who builds a solution to a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're you know you've you experienced a problem yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, oh yeah, I want to create a portfolio career, and then you probably never occurred to you that actually, oh no, but my God, other people are going to have this. Maybe exactly. I should build something yeah. to solve this problem. It's such a, a beautiful thing. And then, of course, so let's take a few steps back because mm-hmm. some really interesting parts in your career that I think our audience, because yeah, our audience are early stage people just about to yeah. become founders well you've just become a founder yeah. people who are just like pre-series well pre-seed seed yeah. and so you worked in an industry that a lot of people are super fascinated by and uh, people is really necessary is that ad tech side of things yeah. right so like you know my own business stays so Obviously, we throw money at Google and Facebook. Of course we do. But like, you must have some massive learnings. This is where you must be going to all these startups and sharing these learnings with them. Yeah. yeah, so what are like, let's just take some of those few things there. So first of all, what is ad tech for people who don't know? So ad tech, I mean, simplicity, it's ads and tech combined. So um, it's really the world in which you use digital techniques to target the right ad to the right person at the right time. So. If you think about the evolution of marketing, and I'll, I'll shortcut a lot of stuff, up until 15, 20 years ago, it was mass marketing. So you would basically have a brand, you would write the brand strategy, you would um, brief an agency, make one ad pretty much for TV, um, and spend a couple of million getting it made, and then pump that ad to every single person, irrespective of you know their purchase intent, their purchase power, their loyalty or not to your brand their, their behavior is like literally everyone got the same ad and so it was all about consistency and you know something that cut through and hopefully made a difference but in essence one ad for everyone fast forward to the future which some advertisers are getting close and others are you know a decade away at some stage in the future advertising is serving pretty much a different ad to every single person uh at you know, at any time based on the brand's relationship with with the individual so if you think about as a brand, what do you want to say to someone? You should be thinking about their age, their sex, their marital status, their household income, their past purchases with you, their interactions with your call center, you know, what they did on your website, what they did in your app, um, their relationship with your competitor brands, the timing of their purchase, you know, it goes on and on and on and on, which ultimately means that one day in theory, every single ad is a, is a one-to-one conversation. Um, and obviously the, the transformation is still ongoing, but you know, sophisticated advertisers these days will um, use large, you know, basically customer databases uh, to serve, you know, dozens or even hundreds of different ads to different segments based on where they are in the journey with that brand. Okay, good, good summary. Okay, and so when you, uh, okay, so right now, when you're going and you're coaching people, what are the most obvious problems that people suffer? Why are they people wasting money or wasting time in those areas? So it's a good question. And actually one of the quick wins in the world of digital advertising is just cutting out waste. So if you think about it in any ad campaign, you're serving some ads, you've got some creative, you've got some landing pages, you've got some marketing goals. And um, one of the first thing you do is say, where am I not getting a response? You know, where am I getting terrible click through rates or terrible conversion rates or um, terrible like time on site if you're driving people to a website and just stop doing that or, or change what you're doing. Um, so I'd say, you know, an awful lot of the waste, go back a few years ago, a lot of waste was things like buying ads on networks where actually it was a robot seeing your ad, not a human. Most of that's been cleaned up. Um, 
and there are a lot of you know people sort of buying ads on non-digital with a lot a big la a lack of accountability again most that's been cleaned up so now most ads are seen by people and so it's really a case of was the right ad seen by the right person in a way that it made a meaningful impact on effectively sales it might not be immediate sales but you build a brand so that maybe they'll buy your product at a later date or recommend it or you know, download your app or, or uh, whatever it might be. So ultimately, are you getting a response that justifies the price you paid for serving that ad? Um, so let's say on, on Facebook right now, you probably pay about one pence per ad served um, if you're paying a 10 pound CPM. Um, and so was each ad that you serve worth 1p? In some cases, if someone downloads your app, that's probably worth 10 quid or 30 quid or whatever. Uh, but in a lot of other cases, you know, you served an ad to someone who will never do anything with it and you've wasted your money. So it's kind of, it's hard one to say exactly where, but I'd say in general, it's targeting the wrong audience or serving the wrong creative or trying to get an action that's just not gonna happen. Uh, and you can very quickly start trimming out the fat and the waste and then zoom in on what's working. And if you feel like you were missing a trick, you know, iterate. I mean, a big part of digital advertising is just iterate, iterate, iterate. There's no way your original campaign will work. It just doesn't work. It's like um, there was a German field marshal, von Moltke, who said no plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, and it's the same in digital advertising. No campaign plan survives contact with reality. It's like, you know, you've got to keep iterating the creative, the targeting, the, the, the goals, etc. I love that. I love that so much. That's really pointless. It's a really good takeaway. Um, I like that a lot. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. Um, okay, so look, as an expert in the field, and we'll move on from ad tech in a minute, um, but as, um, as an expert in the field, what's the, uh, where do you think the the next big move is where like where, where's the untapped potential mm -hmm. i love all that kind of stuff you know at the moment we're um, we're seeing some great stuff in tiktok but like where's yeah, yeah. where do you think's the untapped potential where do you think the big next move is as someone who is super close to it yeah so i don't think in terms of platforms i would have said tiktok a year ago because clearly it's really up and coming and doing well but to me there's no immediate next platform on the horizon i'm sure there is but it hasn't caught my attention yet but um there's a few big themes going on. So one is what's called social commerce. So actually selling things on social media sites. So all the big, at least American um, uh, social media sites, is, uh, it historically thought advertising, like getting people to click on an ad to leave my site or leave my app. Um, unlike the Chinese apps that actually became very big on e-commerce, et cetera. Uh, what we're seeing with things like Facebook shops, Instagram commerce, et cetera, is that actually people are very happy buying stuff on Facebook or on Instagram. And pretty soon that's gonna happen on Snapchat, on Pinterest, on Twitter, on YouTube, et cetera. So that's a very big theme, uh, is if you sell stuff to actually sell it on social media rather than get people to leave the site. And by the way, that's good and bad for, for advertisers. On the one hand, people don't come to your site anymore. That's not so good for building a relationship. But on the other, it's an easy opportunity to sell some stuff now. Um, another big theme, and it's been a theme for a while, but this by no means tapped out, is just really understanding customer data. So. Uh, an awful lot of well-targeted ads um, to date have been doing using things like cookie targeting, which is like retargeting, or using things like IDFA, which is the Apple uh, device number on your phone or your or your iPad or whatever. All of that is kind of being made illegal by laws, and so the advertisers who will be able to do the good targeting in the future are the ones that have a relationship with you 
and effectively at some stage you've given them your email address or your mobile phone number and said yes you can send me messages um, and so there's a bit of a battle between advertisers right now to say can you get or build a relationship with your customers so that they will trust you to communicate and they'll give you permission to say yes you can send me an email yes you can send me a Facebook ad yes you can send me you know an ad on YouTube whatever it might be so there's gonna be an awful lot of companies that have done a lot of clever retargeting without really having a relationship with their customers that will probably go bust um, and they'll be replaced by the companies that actually do build a meaningful relationship with their customers uh, and therefore are given permission to communicate with them. Amazing, again, that's cool. Yeah, that's actually really helpful. Um, so that's one part of what you do. Yeah. So you're a mentor and obviously like, you know, you've know you got an encyclopedic knowledge of the ad tech world and that particular space and I can see the value in that. But you're also an angel. So you write yep. checks and you go and look for businesses. Yep. So a couple of things I always love to ask every angel. Um, what excites you when you meet a founder or you look for a business? What are you looking for when you look for that business? So number one is the character of the founder. Uh, the reality with most startups is at some stage they pivot and strategy A becomes strategy B. And the only thing that doesn't change is the team. Therefore, ultimately what you're investing in is the team, not, not, the, not the strategy. It doesn't mean strategy doesn't matter. Clearly strategy matters enormously, but it might change. And so to me, I'll look for a founder or ideally a founding team rather than just a single individual. Teams tend to do better who, yes, absolutely are passionate about an industry, see a major opportunity, have worked out a plan that's differentiated and can win, uh, but also that have good self-knowledge. Where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? Um, where should I run with it? Where should I not trust my judgment? Um, you know, people who are uncoachable generally will fail, whereas people who are coachable generally um, will well, have a higher chance of success. Um, I desire to get that hands dirty. Uh, there are probably too many wannabe founders who are good at PowerPoint, um, but you know you need people who will actually get some some dirt under their fingernails one way or another. Um, what else? Ability to inspire others. I mean, ultimately they do over time. They need to build a team. So can they attract a team? Um, insane energy. I mean, ultimately, there's so many hurdles to overcome. Um, so generally that comes with optimism, although, although I've known a few founders who are actually very pessimistic, but that then drives them to be more intense because they think everything's yeah. going to go wrong today. So, but, so intensity is more important than optimism, but one way or another, it's kind of a determination to succeed um, and to sort of you know, kick down obstacles as they come along rather than sort of uh, give up and die. Um, a bit of networking helps. I mean, again, some founders are introverts, but normally they'll find a, a, a co-founder who's a, not necessarily an extrovert, but comfortable asking strangers favors. You know, like you know, one of, well, actually more than one of my investors, literally investment companies uh, reached out to me on LinkedIn and said, um, I'd love to have you as a mentor. I <laughs> just random, you know, out of the cold. And um, I kind of thought that's a bit necky, but you know, okay, what's the story? Find out the story, do a call, and maybe it turns into a mentoring relationship. Um, so there's definitely an element of um, just being prepared to, to ask for stuff. And certainly most founders have no shame in saying, do you want to invest in my company? Can I have some advice, etc." cetera? Um, you know, rather than being a kind of shy wallflower and, and feeling they're not worthy. I love that, I love that. Okay, so, I mean, amazing, amazing, really good advice, um, the things you look for. Okay, so, Mentor, angel, and now let's move on to the Portfolio Collective. Yeah. So this is the thing. So there are people who are listening to this right now and they are thinking, look, I want to start a business, okay? Um, and I want to go and start my 
build a company, but not everyone has an idea. Yeah. But a lot of people have loads of great skills. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a sales guy by career. You know, that's that's really my background. And um, I've done consultancy with people before, but I don't even want to be a freelance sales guy. That's not my jam, you yeah. know. But then there are people who've worked as startups that maybe don't want to go and start their own one. Are they the kind of people that can then become, build a portfolio career? I, loads of people can build a portfolio career. And the people you described, absolutely. So if I look at, the people coming to us saying, I'd like to be a member and, and what have you, look at where they're coming from, but also why they want to portfolio career. It's actually really diverse. Um, and we, we basically call ourselves the, the lifetime accelerator for portfolio professionals. So you know what an accelerator does for a startup. It's like, you know, give support and get people up and running. But the idea is we do it forever because ultimately as a portfolio professional, you're constantly reinventing yourself. Otherwise you get commoditized. If you look at the background of our members, um, we've got a lot of executives from big companies. Right now, we seem to have a lot of people coming out of Google, WPP, Barclays, HSBC, you know, hit a certain point in their career and said, I don't want this anymore. This you know, corporate life isn't what I, what I want anymore. Yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of people who've had C-level jobs at startups, um, probably not made retirement money, so still need to work for a living, but actually say, I kind of like the idea of working maybe with multiple startups, etc. cetera. Uh, quite a lot of creatives like writers, film directors, that kind of thing, um, influencers. Uh, what are the other backgrounds? Quite a few ex-army officers, but I guess that's probably my, you know, my network. Um, and, and a few others. So there's generally, they come to us because they, they have hit a certain point, done pretty well in their career, um, and saying, I don't want this kind of corporate life, the one that you know, I thought I wanted when I came out of university. Oh, we've also got a lot of like vets, lawyers, accountants, doctors, that kind of thing. So lots of professions one way. If you look at what they want or what, what kind of portfolio career they want, Probably top of the list by volume is actually like a B2B consultant, very often working with, say, well-funded startups. So, you know, Series A, Series B startups, raise some money, need smart, experienced people around them, don't want to pay a fortune for an annual salary, but will happily pay for a day a week or for an advisory board or for an expert for a project for a fixed period of time. Um, and that's a really nice match when you get that right, the kind of experienced executive uh, with a hefty day rate and a well-funded startup will pay for a day a week or whatever, uh, or you know, a speech or mentoring or something. Um, so that's probably the biggest group. But I mean, other groups that we have, uh, probably the second biggest is actually people who are leaving a corporate job, want to found a startup, don't yet have the idea right. So they want to kind of create more flexibility and freedom in their life, earn a bit of money and keep kicking the tires on an idea until it's ready to launch. Um, then, it's very cool. And then some of the others just to round off is we've got a lot of people who are real deep specialists, like a drone lawyer. Really cool. So a lawyer who's a geek about drones. And he wow. spends his, uh, his, his days um, helping drone manufacturers what data they can store and how they store it and how they transmit it, working with airports to work out whether they can shoot them down or not, working with governments on drone law. Um, he's even rewriting the Geneva Conventions or helping rewrite it. You know, wow. All sorts of cool stuff. Um, so you get real deep specialists who, as I say, quite a lot of creatives who just say, I like working on my own, I don't want corporate nonsense, but I like writing, I like filmmaking, I like, um, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, so it's a real sort of mixed bag. And actually that's where the beauty of the community comes is these people collaborate with each other. There's a lot of barter goes on. I'll do your taxes if you do my branding video or vice versa. Um, I like that. So, I like so, that. so it's a really cool community. 
I like that a lot. I think, um, and actually, I'm so glad that you're talking about it because there's a lot of people who are in that space. And also, yeah. what better way, I was there's no better way to learn about running a business than starting your own business. But the yeah. second best way is to spend time with them. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, as a mentor, you learn so much. You know, I learned so much by speaking to founders oh, as much time. as I do about, about being in yeah. a startup myself, you know, and people forget that. Okay, so look, we're, um, we've whistled through it, and I mean, this has been. This has been a quick one. This is amazing. You talk you such great stuff. It's not hard getting information out of you, Ben. This is good. Um, um, so no, it's good. It's good. I like it. So look, I got three questions for you now, yeah. which um, I um, which I ask everyone on, on the show, and I think I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So the first one, you work with such an an amazing group of startups, and you've worked with some of the best in the world. You know, Google. But what is a common fuck up that you see? What is something you see time and time again where you're like, guys, don't do this, yeah, um, with founders and with startups? Good question. I mean, you see a lot, but most, what would be really big ones? Um, I know a really big one is not forecasting cash flow. I mean, that's probably a, cl a cliche, cause, but it's like just really just thinking about money in, money out um, is a kind of a, You've got to do it because ultimately, if you run out of cash, you know, then you're kind of screwed. Um, obviously, Google was fine. Google had plenty of cash, but it, was, but it was a later stage startup. But there are a lot who just kind of don't keep an eye on the cash. Um, and I've kind of seen it in the maybe Series A, actually one down, probably seed stage. It's kind of like, um, okay, we'll keep hiring and, and you know, on the assumption of success. But you know, there's like, well, what's the worst case scenario for revenue? And can you actually afford your, your headcount um, if you don't do it? So that's probably one. Um, what would be another one? Hiring in a hurry. I, 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 startups are in a hurry, and that's always you know, great to be in a hurry, but with hiring, I think you need to have a sense of urgency, but not hire wrong. Um, you really do need to write the job description thoroughly, get buy-in from the people that matter, post it in the right places, get a long list, uh, whittle it down properly with whatever surveys or, or questionnaires or whatever, do really rigorously on it, case studies and, and culture fit for the last you know three, four candidates. Um, because bad hires can basically screw things up for six months and then you fire them, and then you've got a gap and it costs you a fortune uh, to do it. So bad hiring um, is probably a real sort of big one. Um, what would be the rest? One that I see occasionally, and some of the founders I work with are quite academic, is polishing and polishing and polishing the plan without actually doing anything. And as if by doing anything, I mean like letting the rubber hit the road. You know, keep writing and rewriting the marketing plan without just serving some ads to see what happens next. Um, or constantly obsessing over know, the insurance and the legal contracts without just winning a few customers. Because uh, the reality is you learn so much by doing stuff that um, you, there's only so long to be writing the plan before you just say, right, the plan's 80% there, uh, let's get started. Yeah, that's really, I mean, look, I'm with you on all of those. You know, like you know, you've got to experiment. You know, the best teams build the best companies. Get yeah. the hiring right, and don't run out of money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. that's what kills yeah. startups. Um, okay, so moving to the other side of the coin, what is your single piece of advice that you give to every founder? Good question. There's a lot. Um, there's so much. What would be a good one? I'm one of them. Is kind of remain paranoid. Um, it's uh, the moment you think you're doing fine is the moment you start slipping. Um, you've got to think, okay, how do I remain differentiated? How do I 
win my customers? How do I avoid losing my customers? How do I um, stay ahead of the competition? How do I ensure that I don't run out of money? Um, it, it's sort of a, obviously it needs to be healthy paranoia as opposed to unhealthy, but basically um, be restless, um, you know, be edgy, um, not just in a what could go wrong, but am I doing enough to go right? Like, you know, even just because you got three good ideas is three enough. Um, what more could you do? Um, just because sales are working this month doesn't mean they work next month, you know. Uh, what's going to keep, um, keep things growing and remaining healthy? Amazing, good advice. All right, and last one. Look, you're, you're a guy that is incredibly productive. I've started obsessing over productivity and I believe healthy body, healthy mind, and I really care about it with my, my employees and I want everyone to flourish as much as they can. And so when you speak to successful people, of which you are, they always are absolutely incredibly good at maximizing their time and their life. Now I see you're actually, if people can't see this, you're actually standing during this uh, yeah, this meeting. Yeah. I said, why are you waiting for side to side? That's the army in you. Um, but like, tell me, what is your what is your life hack for productivity? Um, first of all, being obsessed with productivity, and funnily enough, probably 20% of all my conversations with founders are around personal productivity because getting more out of your day is just so important. Uh, but I'm also with you, it's like, it is about the balance. It's not just about getting more work done, it's about balancing health, family, you know, sleep, etc. Uh, I'm not so good on the sleep, I'm good on everything else. But but so what do I do? I mean, to exercise, I actually, first of all, put exercise in the calendar um, to make sure it happens because otherwise there's always, you know, something urgent going on. Um, on top of that, for, for, for health uh, or exercise, I try to have at least two half hour calls a day that are phone only so I can go for a walk in the park. Uh, if I can, I'll do three, yeah, yeah, come rain or shine. So that's kind of, and it's very easy to say everything needs to be Zoom, but it doesn't. Um, you know, there are some things. So if I'm meeting someone for the first time, I'll do Zoom. If you need to screen share, Zoom. But you know, if it's a one-to-one -one with one of my team and we know each other and trust each other, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll take you to the park, at least in the headphones. Um, so sort of really planning exercise and stuff is really important to me. I'm a big fan of a lot of tools. I use Superhuman for my email. Michael's $30 a month, but that's only a dollar a day. And quite frankly, it saves me 20 minutes a day and my time's worth more than a dollar every 20 minutes. Um, so that's one. I use Calendly for, for the calendar because it just saves, again, 20 minutes a day at least, just all that juggling. When are you free? When are you free? Which link should we use? Um, so that's another one. Um, I use Evernote for just organizing my notes. I, again, there's other tools to all of these, but, but using those tools just to avoid that hour or two of just pointless admin every day, um, really important. Um, I have some bots working for me doing some of my, my um, email and LinkedIn work, um, which is quite handy for saving time. Um, and I kind of always just challenge stuff in the calendar. This is an hour, could it be half an hour? This is every week, could it be every two weeks? Um, we had a meeting and didn't make a decision. You know, are we bad at meetings or was it a pointless meeting? Um, and just constantly challenging everything. Um, and then I even block out kind of family time. I block out six till seven to see the kids and put them to bed. Um, and things like that because so so calendar as you can tell is a very big part of my life is um, blocking family time meal time exercise time um, and then constantly iterating on that 
Amazing. I absolutely respect that. I think, uh, yeah, first of all, superhuman, big shout out. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. sold. I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's just so helpful. Anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's an email um, that basically piggybacks off Gmail, but it's a, a different client and it allows you to operate. It, it probably does save me 20 minutes to an yeah. hour a day. Genuinely, it's incredible. Um, and also, um, yeah, the walking meeting. Anyone who knows me knows I'm obsessed with the walking yeah. meeting. I, I'm at, um, at 16,000 steps today. Very so, good. Uh, I'm on. I'm only on nine, so you're ahead of me. But uh, I'll. Uh, that just pushes me to go out one more time today, at least. I did twenty-five thousand yesterday, so there wow. you go. There's a challenge. Okay, nice. All right, yeah, just. But I've got a dog as well, so it makes okay, life a lot easier. There you go. All right. Well, look, Ben. This has been amazing. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, pleasure. Cheers.